Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're explaining how cults, communes, and religious movements have shaped the way we eat. There's the good such as how Seventh-day Adventists help promote vegetarianism. And then there's the strange Pythagoras, for example, never ate beans. He thought they contained human souls. And of course, he was mocked. 
even contemporaries of his time and later philosophers um, made jokes about him maybe just being a little flatulent. Religion, food, and wild beliefs about beans, that's coming up later in the show. First up, I'm joined now by Clarissa Wei, author of Made in Taiwan. Clarissa, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. So, Raha Night Market, I was there years ago in Taipei. I got off the plane, I checked into my hotel and rushed right over. And the first stall, the one that's right at the beginning there under the sign, as I'm sure you know, is the black pepper buns. Right. Which they cook and they have a whole bunch of tandoor ovens and they stick them on the inside and cook them. And I think they were just like $2. But it was absolutely one of the best things I've ever had in my life. So let's talk about those. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's one of my favorite stalls in all of Taiwan as well. And yeah, so that's a dish um, that has been in Taiwan for a while. And it's just so amazing because it's pork, but they add a lot of black pepper in it. And it's just bursting with juices. And that place has... I think it's been around since I was a kid. And to this day, it still commands, you know, sometimes up to two hour long lines, which is incredible for a street vendor. So I totally agree. And you definitely went to the right place for street food in Taiwan. So let's talk about one of the dishes I had at the night market, pig blood cake. Yeah. uh, Which looks like a popsicle, which has got a stick. So what's the origin of this? Uh, Tell me all about it. Sure. So I think a lot of people think of pig blood and they get turned off immediately, but the blood is really just used as a coagulant to keep the rice kernels together. At the base of it, it's um, glutinous rice, a long grain glutinous rice. And the the pig blood is sort of mixed in there, which gives it the color um, and it's what holds it together. And it's dressed with a sweet and salty soy paste dressing and then usually dipped in a ground peanut powder, and then cilantro is sprinkled on top. And yeah, I I think I would encourage people to sort of get over the fact that it is made out of blood or it contains blood, because really you're tasting the flavor of the rice kernels together with the peanut powder and the cilantro. And it's just this amazing mix of um, salty and a little bit of sweet from the, the peanut yeah, I mean, the good humor truck should start serving it because it, it looked like a popsicle, but it was it was really <laughs> good. Um, so let, before we get into more recipes, explain to me culturally the different groups. There was obviously a lot of emigration from China in 1949. So, so what are the, the distinct cultural groups in Taiwan and how does that affect the, the recipes and the, the food culture? Yeah, so – even though on a surface level, Taiwan may seem really homogenous, um, mostly Han Chinese people, we are really not because many people's families came in from different waves of immigration. So, for example, my family has been in Taiwan for over 200 some years. We came over with one of the first major waves from Fujian, um, which is southern China. And there was just a love for seafood, rice and pork. And then, like you said, in 1949, then came a surge of new Chinese refugees and they came from all over and they brought their techniques like making wheat noodles, which Taiwan had never seen before, or eating beef um, because for years beef was taboo in Taiwan. Um, And to add on to that, Taiwan was a Japanese colony for nearly half a century. And that has changed our cuisine. You talk about your gas stove in Taiwan has a lot of BTUs, and that 
amazing amount of heat is incredibly important in developing flavor. Um, is that true? You know, people using a sort of those rings that people use hooked up to a propane tank, is this like piped in gas? Do they, you have ovens, you don't have ovens. What, what is the typical kitchen like? Yeah, so we don't have the, the rings that you kind of see in the um, like Chinese restaurants. Um, but it is incredibly high heat and it is um, linked to a giant propane tank. So when I run out of gas, I have to call a gas man who will drive over a tank on his scooter and lug it up six flights of stairs. And initially, when I first moved into this apartment, um, because of recipe testing, I wanted to sort of change my stove to a more American style one. Um, but I got laughed at by my local appliance guy because he was like, what do you want food with no flavor? The high flame is something that is um, very typical in Taiwanese kitchens. So it's one of those things where like the lowest heat is still like medium in an American kitchen and the high heat can just burn your socks off immediately. It gets really hot um, in the kitchen. One of the recipes that really caught my attention in your book is meatball soup. Yeah. So the texture is, it's quite, I think the closest um, analogy I can think of it is sort of like a Bratswurst sausage. You know, it's a little bit more bouncy, it like comes together. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to get that texture. It's not just your ground meat. You have to have that bounciness. Um, we had to experiment with throwing some starches in and the temperature matters a lot. But the chefs, they did a demo for us and they were just pounding it with a wooden mallet and they were sort of bragging about their meatballs and showed me a YouTube video with two people playing ping pong with their meatballs like that's how <laughs> bouncy it was and that's sort of a, a source of pride um, for Taiwanese meatball makers which I don't think people in other cultures um, associate meatballs with bounciness. So beans, sweet beans are big in Taiwan, right? Yeah, in Taiwan beans are very much desserts. And I, I have an essay in the cookbook where I was talking to my friend and she told me she went to Australia and was shocked that people ate savory beans. And even though I would say Taiwanese food is very sweet, our desserts don't tend to be overly sweet. It's quite balanced and it's really just um, focused more on texture um, than it is on sugar. So what are some dishes that are you know part of your weekly repertoire? that are classically Taiwanese? Yeah, so um, something that I make probably every other week is um, braised pork over rice, and that's just so easy to do. You just take a fat piece of pork belly, skin on, dice it, and then you throw in soy sauce, some rice wine, um, and some shallots, sugar. And I usually just put that in my steamer, or you can put it in a pressure cooker, and that's lunch for the week, and it keeps really, really well. Um, so that's kind of my favorite thing to do. And then I also like a really simple like fishball soup um, because I find that really comforting and uh, maybe put in some daikon um, inside or some pork ribs. Really simple. I usually will just go to the market and see whatever vegetables are in season and um, fry that up as a side dish and with pork belly and a soup that's a complete meal to me. So Taiwan has been unfortunately, in the news a lot in the last few years because of China building a bigger military presence. So what's the general mood of the population right now? 
So most people in Taiwan, over 90 percent, want the status quo, which is, you know, no unification um, with China. But they also don't want war or conflict uh, with China. And I wouldn't say it's causing so much angst as it is you see young people sort of trying to figure out what it means to be Taiwanese and what makes us different from China. And so from a culture perspective, this has been really interesting to see. You see people sort of wanting to speak more Taiwanese in schools versus just Mandarin. Um, you see chefs embracing local and native ingredients and sort of um, figuring out what Taiwanese food means to them. Um, musicians um, singing in only Taiwanese or making songs about the island. The majority of people aren't scared. Um, every time, you know, the warplanes fly over our air zones, I think my friends in the States are more scared than we are in Taiwan. It's just become a daily part of our life. But um, people in Taiwan are very aware of the tensions. And as a response to that, people have become more proud to be Taiwanese, which has been really interesting to see. Melissa, it's been just an immense pleasure having you on Mill Street and all the best. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. That was Clarissa Wei. Her book is Made in Taiwan, Recipes and Stories from the Island Nation. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. So I was, um, when I'm in Vermont, I like to start dinner early on Saturday morning, especially if it's something's long cooking. But then sometimes I have to go outside for a few hours. So I was doing a stew, 325 for like three hours, and then you have to reduce the oven and keep cooking. So what I did was, three hours had gone by, I took it out of the oven, I opened the oven door, I reduced it down to 200, let it cool down a little bit, put it back in, I left it for four or five hours and came back, and it was the best stew I've ever made. It was phenomenal. It kept the stew above 140, 150, right? So it was safe. There was plenty of liquid in there, and it was sealed nicely with a heavy top, so it didn't run out of liquid. And it was just absolutely amazing. So I think if you have that problem where you're cooking something, but you have to go out, instead of taking out, leaving it on the counter and letting it cool down, I just turn the oven way down. And it was phenomenal. I guess it's like a slow cooker. Well, hands down, the most important thing you just said, because I was getting nervous, is that it stayed above 140. Yeah. The danger zone is 40 to 140. Right. And so if, hey, if you didn't kill the whole family and it tasted better, I'd say that was brilliant. The timing doesn't matter. You could go out for hours. Yeah. And the flavor development when I came right. back was incredible. Right. It was so much better than well, you if just, I'd just done the recipe the regular way. Well, then you know? there you go. You just so, taught us all something. 200 degrees. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. I was so excited. Yeah. Okay, time for calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Edie from Southern California. Hi, Edie. How can we help you today? Well, I love to bake, and I have noticed over the years I prefer a cake made with oil rather than butter. And I'm wondering if I can substitute equally oil for butter in cake recipes. Well, it depends on the cake because butter's not just in there for flavor. It's sometimes in there because it's going to be creamed with sugar, which creates sort of air and leavening. 
Okay. But if the butter in the cake recipe is melted, then I don't think there'd be any problems. Understand, though, that butter does contain some water. Oil does not. So you'd have to adjust the amount of liquid. Okay. And if there's, you know, leavener aside from the melted butter being added, then just swap in the oil and watch the moisture and, and you should be fine. I don't know. Chris, what do you think? Hooray! I totally agree with you. I oh, mean, my goodness. I mean, the, yeah. well, it's like it's like as where people like carrot cake because it's got oil in it. You know, it will last a long time. It has that silky, moist mouthfeel. I don't like the term mouthfeel, but butter gets a little drier. You know, I wouldn't worry about butter's got maybe 15% water, and I wouldn't worry about that too much. In any recipe that calls for melted butter, not cream butter, right. you could substitute okay. oil one for one. I think you're fine. And by the way, I don't know if you know the history of chiffon cake, but I think it was invented in the 1920s in Hollywood, and it was a huge hit. But the secret was oil. That was the big secret in chiffon yeah. cake. It turned out a, a fabulous cake. So I totally agree with you. If it's a melted butter recipe, just substitute oil. I would stay away from canola oil because I Ooh, think it has fishy. a— fishy. It's fishy. Right. And I don't— Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't even put it in my gas tank. But um, I, I get like a sunflower oil or grapeseed oil or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, good for you. I wish more recipes for cakes had oil in them. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. thanks for calling. And All good right. for you. Yeah. Yes. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Dave from Madison, Wisconsin. How can we help you? I've been making um, my own pizza dough for a little while now. Um, I use the recipe from... Roberta's that the New York Times has posted. Mm -hmm. But I usually end up freezing the dough just out of convenience. And so I make it, shape it into balls, and then freeze it, and then I take it out, put it in the refrigerator a couple days before I'm going to use it, and then usually let it sit out on the counter for, oh, maybe an hour or so before I actually make the pizzas. But my question is, it comes out fine, but I notice that it just isn't quite as, like, risen or light and airy as dough that I've made freshly or dough that I've bought like from a local Italian market. So my question is, if you know you're going to freeze it, do you need to, you know, either increase the amount of yeast or decrease the amount of salt or do anything along those lines to help it sort of uh, cook better? You take it out of the freezer, put it in the fridge for a day or two. What happens to the size of the dough after two days in the fridge, how much bigger does it get? I would say it probably almost doubles. Are you putting this in the fridge before the first proof? That is, you've just mixed the dough, you've kneaded it, and it goes in the freezer? The recipe has you let it rise for like about 15 minutes in between kneading it for two rounds of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, essentially, most of the rise then would be after I've taken it out of the freezer. Well, a couple thoughts. It could be we actually tested this. If the dough doesn't get up to about 75 degrees before you bake it, it's not going to be a very active dough. If you have it in the fridge and take it out, it'll take a lot longer than 30 minutes because that dough is like 38 or 40 degrees, right? You take it out and it's going yeah. to take a lot more than half an hour to get it from 40 degrees to 75. So I think what could be happening is your dough is still cold. Um, the yeast is not that active. You don't have a lively dough, and you're throwing it in a hot oven or on the grill, whatever, and it's just not going to puff up that much. So I would definitely get an instant thermometer 
and make sure that dough's up over 70 degrees. And I find that makes a huge difference in the texture and the, the amount of rise you get in the oven and puffiness and chew as well. So I think that's your problem. I, you know, I make pizza dough all the time and I let it sit in the fridge for three days. Are you using just like a half teaspoon of yeast or a full? And what kind of yeast? Yeah. Is this recipe yeah. have a small amount of yeast and it's a long, slow process or, well, or is it get- more? Yeah, I guess that's my question because the recipe only calls for two grams of yeast, which they're saying that works out to be three-quarters of a teaspoon. And that recipe has it sit in the fridge for two or three days? Yeah, correct. It says either 24 hours or leave it out at room temperature for three to four hours. The way I do it is half a teaspoon of yeast. I like a fairly hydrated dough, so more like 75% to 80% water you know, knead it, et cetera, put in the fridge for three days. That's ideal. Take it out, shape it into balls, and let it sit until it comes up to over 70 degrees, and then you're good to go. The freezing should not affect anything one way or the other. I think pizza dough freezes pretty well. But I think the problem is the dough's not warm enough. And I give it a full three days in the fridge just to develop. But, Sarah? No, I listen, you're the pizza maven, and that all makes complete sense to me. I think that's the problem. But try the three-day thing because I think that actually works really well. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. I love the show and I love you guys and I appreciate the tips. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a kitchen mystery or a question, please give us a call. That number is 855-426-9843. Or you can simply email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, this is Mark. I'm calling from Lost River, West Virginia. Well, hello. How can we help you today? I recently moved and in the process realized that I'm not sure if I'm storing certain spices correctly. I know that I need to keep sesame seeds in either the refrigerator or the freezer. I keep whole wheat flour, things like that in the freezer as well. I know that those can go rancid. And then as I was looking through my spices, going through everything, I realized, well, I have poppy seeds. Should those be in their fridge or freezer? And then I kept going through them, and I was like, well, there's fennel seeds, there's caraway seeds, there's cumin seeds. And then, you know, you could keep spinning this out. There's ground cumin is really just cumin seeds that are ground up. So I'm sort of like, where does this end? <laughs> or is it really just sesame seeds that I need to be worrying about? Oh, dear. What a nightmare. But what an excellent question. It's the seeds that have a high fat content that you need to refrigerate or freeze. And I usually just put them in the freezer unless you know you're going to go through them real fast. And that would be sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds. Yes, poppy seeds. You know, I think awful lot of People end up making something with poppy seeds, and it just tastes off because the poppy seeds do go rancid. Also, my husband puts flaxseed on his cereal every morning. That should be refrigerated, whether it's ground or whole. And then chia is another one. All the others you mentioned, cumin, what else did you say? Caraway. Caraway. Those aren't high fat. No, those aren't high fat, so those aren't to be worried about. The question is, if you had another seed that you were concerned about, how would you find out whether you needed to or not? I imagine you could check that out online. Now, Chris? Just leave them on the counter for a couple months and (laughs) take a taste. All the nuts, I agree with Sarah, any kind of nut, 
peanuts, almonds, etc. All those have to go in the refrigerator as well. The worst ones are pine nuts. Those things, they can turn in a week and they get nasty. And they're so expensive. They're expensive and they're nasty. And also, a lot of times when you buy them, make sure you're buying them refrigerated. They're not just sitting out. Sometimes they're just sitting out and you can pretty much guarantee they're bad. So all nuts have to be refrigerated or frozen. I think Sarah's right. Those are the key ones. The seeds, yeah. And you know, in general, the rest of the spices keep in a cool, dark place away from heat or light. Also, if you're talking about oils, like sunflower oil, too, the pumpkin seed oil, et cetera, those also go bad. They can. Quickly. So you just take a whiff when you open that container because you can tell right away if it's off. On a related question, like how long does vegetable oil typically last? I mean, I've got some that's been around for a couple of years, and I know that should last (laughs) a long time. I'd say once you open it, a couple months would be tops. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The more refined the oil, the longer it'll last. If you buy a less refined, let's say, grapeseed oil or something, four to six weeks, and then you probably should. Heave ho. Yeah. Do give it a whiff. Okay. Okay. Well, take care. Thank Thanks for much. calling. Yes. Good question. Thanks. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, how cults, communes, and religious movements have shaped American food culture. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza? 
<laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Our next guest, Christina Ward, is the author of the new book, Holy Food. Christina, welcome back to Mill Street. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to speak with you. We're talking about food and cults and communes and religious movements. And food has been used to control people. Food has been used to inspire people. But I think my favorite thing in your book is Pythagoras. He thought, oddly enough, human souls could be transferred to other living things like beans. Yeah. So... If you're one of his followers, you could not eat beans because you might be consuming a human soul. That sounds, you know, a tad beyond the pale, doesn't it? It does. And the fun thing about these stories is they're rooted in some nature of belief. And for Pythagoras, there was the influence of the Egyptian death cults, which likened fava beans to like a human fetus. And so it was always thought that as a representation of the fetus, you shouldn't eat beans. And Pythagoras kind of ran with that. Um, and of course, he was mocked. Even contemporaries of his time and later philosophers um, made jokes about him maybe just being a little flatulent. <laughs> Yeah, a, a good flatulence joke never goes bad, even after 2,000 years. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about this line between good health uh, and maybe taking things way too far. So you mentioned one spiritual guru, Yogi Bhajan, and you could only eat like one of eight different ingredients, something like that, for like 30 days. So you had like filberts and tomatoes and eggplant. So restrictive diets are really very much part of the story, right? 
Restrictive diets are very much part of the story because then it falls into what's called like a bite model. It's a method of control. And so leaders will impose a restriction on folks uh, behaviorally. And food is one of the easiest kind of restrictions to impose on followers or new believers. Yogi Bhajan actually had a phrase. He was trying to separate the yogis from the bogies. And so it was a purity <laughs> test. If somebody could do it for 30 days, that meant they were susceptible. That meant that they were going to follow whatever he was going to tell them. But some of these folks, though, Elizabeth Clare Prophet of the Church Universal and Triumphant uh, had a very strict diet for her followers, but you write that her walk-in refrigerator was full of ice cream, seafood, and exotic fruit, right? <laughs> yeah, there's always contradictions. And um, that's actually a prevailing theme for so many of these, you know, kind of spiritual, religiously inspired leaders. They often say, listen to the message but don't live as I do, which kind of is a self-absolving, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want and eat all the bad food, you know, bad meaning ice cream all the time, but you guys have to eat the gruel. What about the, the famous cult of Jim Jones? You know, his commune is now part of history in Jonestown. Um, but in terms of the food, everyone had to eat pork liver and onions once a week because I guess that was healthy. Um, drink a glass of water with vinegar, eat apricot seeds every day. So in addition to all the other strange things at Jonestown, there was a series of strict you know, guidelines about eating. So why do you think health and food is integral to most cults? The food, as we talked about, is a way to control, but also the health because they were looking at themselves inspired by a few lines in the Bible, in the New Testament, about your body really doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to the Lord, and it behooves you to take care of that body. So optimum health was a sign of holiness and a way to honor the belief. So are there cases in your research where you found that religious movements— and how they dealt with food really made sense together, that the philosophy of the movement and the, and the diet they proposed were actually in league with each other. They actually made sense together and that this was actually a healthy and good way to live. So a really good example of that is the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, the right. SDA really adopted this idea of vegetarianism and then lately veganism as a pure way to live. And then they put a lot of resources into the science of it. People may remember uh, the Kellogg Sanatoria um, right. as I, like one of the first health spas. And so they've been proven out over the 100 plus years as uh, studies have shown that the Seventh-day Adventists are some of the healthiest population in the United States. So that's a good example of where the belief was actually backed up by the science. Another movement that had, a, I think, a really positive food impact was the Nation of Islam. They supported black-owned farms. They grew a lot of their own food. It was a way of avoiding food oppression by controlling their own food supply. And that was um, actually just a wonderful thing, right? It was, and it was born out of that self-reliance movement uh, where George Washington Carver was a huge right. advocate. The idea of having zero reliance on a white system, and a lot of that meant processed food. So going back to the land growing your own and uh, reducing consumption of processed foods was the idea to build health in the community. And of course, they've been proven right lately as well. 
So some of these groups actually went into a serious production of food, right? Like Little Debbie brand of snack cakes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is owned by a Seventh-day Adventist affiliation. The Unification Church is big into seafood. What, what are some of the, the big businesses that started out part of religious groups? Well, we were talking about Yogi Bhajan a little earlier, and his food businesses are incredible. Since his death, the companies have divested a little bit from the actual church holdings. But if anyone has been to a food co-op and had Peace Cereal, that it was a Yogi Bhajan. Yogi Tea. Uh, everybody love Yogi Tea. That was Yogi Bajan's organization. Those are just a, a few examples of where that food is, you know, kind of came to market uh, through a cult. Are there other products we might not realize started out as being from a cult or a commune or a religious movement that's still part of the mainstream supermarket experience? Uh, Morningstar brand. If you look at any of the, like, you know, fake meat business, and Morningstar mm-hmm. is, is huge in that, the Morningstar started as a Seventh-day Adventist hmm. company, and it was spun off, but, you know, there it was. And and even going further back to the 1800s, anytime you're buying an Amana stove, that was born out of the Amana colony, which was a German Anabaptist oh. Uh, separatist colony in Amana, Iowa. Yeah. And so the same thing we go back to even further to Oneida. Right, silver. Oneida silverware, right? right? That was their revenue generator for, they called it a, um, a socialist commune. So after spending all this time researching the, the cults, the communes, the religious movements, where are we today? So it, when we look at modern day today, there are definitely cultic influences in our food and in our food behaviors. Gwen Shamblin uh, started the Way Down workshop. She died a few years ago in a plane crash as um, a multimillionaire. And these weight loss programs were disseminated through churches, mostly through non-denominational or Assembly of God style churches. And they were rooted in the Daniel Fast, which is a story out of the Old Testament, and essentially a vegan-type diet, very calorically restricted. And so the church got involved not just with the eating, but with the dieting and to control you know, what people were eating and, and making their own judgments on weight and what people should look like and how they should live. So what was your biggest takeaway uh, while writing Holy Food? In other words, what, what do we learn from all of this? What my takeaway is, is that all of us are always striving for an identity, a personal identity, a cultural identity. And that is always, to me, that interesting thing about how we become American, because the foods we choose to eat, how we make those foods American, are our belief systems. And the growth of the new religious movements and cults and even some of the communal living situations could only really happen in the United States, the way we're governmentally set up and the way our just peculiar culture is. We tend to towards this individualism, but we still need community. And so you get separatists and you get all of this kind of signaling so we can find other members of our quote unquote tribe. We find our people and, you know, in so much that we are always building a commune, we're always building a cult. And it just really becomes about how restrictive is membership and how restricted are the behaviors. Christina, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. 
That was Christina Ward. Her latest book is Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat. Food, more than anything else in the human experience, is iconic. The Catholic Church turned bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Cults use food as a way of controlling members, and today food is a form of identity. Vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, sustainable, or plant-based. Throughout human history, however, food was, well, food. As Winnie the Pooh liked to say, what could be more important than a little something to eat? I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, beef bulgogi. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you were in South Korea recently, desperately seeking fried chicken, which was not hard to find because <laughs> it was on every corner. But you also stopped at restaurants to have beef bulgogi. So explain what this is. Explain why it's so great. And then how do you do this at home? Yeah, well, to be honest, I didn't think we were going to be able to do it at home. Bulgogi at a restaurant is very much a communal affair. You sit around these tables that have giant propane burners in the center, and it's a very communal activity where you cook together, you eat together, and it's basically all about the beef, and you cook it on this platter at the center of the table, and there's a trough of simmering broth around it, and so as the beef sears, you put other ingredients in the broth, and you kind of let those simmer, and then you just kind of pile everything into a bowl full of rice, and it's delicious and wonderful. And if you don't happen to have one of these tables, kind of hard to do at home. So <laughs> I didn't think we were going to get this recipe. However, I then learned that that's really just restaurant-style bulgogi, and there is actually a home-style bulgogi that is done and is very easy. It's basically taking the flavors of the meat from the restaurant-style bulgogi and simplifying it down to a basic beef stir-fry that's served with rice. Now, in restaurant bulgogi, you have a lot of vegetables and side dishes and stuff, and there's obviously nothing stopping you from doing that at home, too. But you're not going to be simmering it in the broth and assembling it as a pile like that. This is really all about capturing the wonderful flavors of the meat that is classic to bulgogi, bringing that home and turning it into this quick stir-fry. Two questions. So is the marinade unique in some way as opposed to just a regular beef stir-fry? And do they use different cuts of beef, right, for the stir-fry that we might hear? Yeah, historically beef in Korea has been a little bit tougher, and so it's always very, very thinly shaved. These aren't hunks of steak. These are shavings of steak. So that's the first thing. The second thing they do, which is to answer your first question and this question, uh, there is something about the marinade that sets it apart, and it addresses the tough beef, and that is Asian pear. So they grate Asian pear into an otherwise kind of classic marinade, at least for this part of the world, which is garlic, ginger, soy sauce mirror and sesame oil, things like that. But the Asian pear is key because it adds kind of floral, almost citrusy notes. But more importantly, it has enzymatic activity that tenderizes the beef. And so now you're slicing your beef really thin and you're adding this enzyme-rich Asian pear, which also gives the sauce a nice sweetness because this sauce really is a balance of sweet and savory. And you're tenderizing your meat a little bit more, and then you sear it really quickly in a skillet and done. It is so delicious and so simple. It's really wonderful. It does capture the spirit of bulgogi, or at least the flavor of bulgogi from the restaurant. 
I don't happen to have Asian pears in my pocket right now. I mean, <laughs> can I use a Bartlett pear or something else? Yes, yeah. We tested it on common pears in the U.S., and it works the same. The flavor is not quite as sophisticated, but it works just fine. JM, thank you. Beef Bulgogi at home. It's a beef stir-fry with an outstanding sauce. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Beef Bulgogi at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, what an onion can reveal about the mysteries of the universe. That's right up after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready-to-eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sherry from Honolulu, Hawaii. How can we help you today? Well, I have never liked bread pudding, but my mom does. And I saw some used Hawaiian sweet rolls, that's what we call it when they're marked down because they're short-dated, in the grocery store. And I thought, well, I'll make bread pudding with those because I know she'll like it. And it is delicious. It's a cinnamon brown sugar bread pudding. Mm -hmm. My problem is I cook it in a loaf pan, a small loaf pan. And when I get it out of the oven, it's nicely risen. It's all the way to the top of the loaf pan. There's, you know, the butter and stuff bubbling around the edges. And then it just collapses. It goes down to about a third of that size. And I didn't know if there was any way to prevent that or if it would have like a mousse-like texture if I tried. Well, tell me about the recipe. What do you do to make it? Are you just soaking the bread and the eggs and the cream or milk? Yeah, it's egg and milk and sugar and cinnamon, a little salt. And then I make a topping with butter, flour, brown sugar, and cinnamon. Mm -hmm. And tell me about these sweet rolls. You said they were a little stale, but these are pretty fluffy rolls, right? Yeah, very fluffy, very soft. And they're not actually stale. They're just approaching their sell-by date. Yeah, so am I. I'm approaching myself by date. Um, but I'm not fluffy. I'm not that. fluffy anymore, and I'm not sweet. Well, I think a couple things strike me. One is usually when you're making bread pudding, you tend to use stale bread or bread that's been toasted in the oven a little bit. I do actually cut up the sweet rolls and toast them so they're firm. Okay. They're hard. I've never made a bread pudding in a loaf pan. I tend to make it in a baking, a shallower dish. I think part of the problem may be the depth of this is it's deep, and therefore maybe it rises and then falls if you had a shallower pan and a bigger— Yeah, that might work. I think that would be solve your problem. If you had a 8 by 8 pan or maybe a 9 by mm, 13 Like a baking dish, yeah. Sarah? I uh, agree with Chris, but I'm just going to say anytime you're working with eggs, particularly if you beat them up fairly significantly ahead of time— you know, what goes up must come down. There's some air in there. So it's just natural that it would deflate a bit. I mean, if it tastes good, why do you care? Yeah, I mean, I would like it to be prettier so I could serve it to people proudly. And now it's kind of like, this looks horrible, but it tastes really good. You know, I've never had a bread pudding that was light and airy. That to me seems counterintuitive. It's sort of like stuffing. Stuffing is, you know, Meant can be... be yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with Chris. I don't usually cook it in a loaf pan. But even so, yeah. maybe this is something you just have to come to terms with and put more ice cream on it. I think it's just the pan. Just change the pan. Just change to a shallower pan? Yeah. I looked at a lot of bread pudding recipes, and most of them are made with a much firmer bread. They are. If you switch to a heartier bread, that would also help. Yeah. yeah. Under all conditions, it tastes good, so yes. we're okay. All right, and I will go out with more ice cream. Yes. Thank yeah, you there so you much. go. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. 
This is Mill Street Radio. We want to tackle your toughest culinary challenges. Call us anytime, 855-426-9843. That number is 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Richard from Penn Valley, right outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? I'm following up something we talked about, I don't know when, but uh, vacuum packaging meats that I buy in bulk. I had not seasoned those meats before um, cooking. I just put them in the sous vide frozen and uh, added about 15 minutes to the recommended time. But then I was reading somewhere about seasoning ahead of time was okay, and I thought that might work. You had thought it might make the meat mealy or not great texture. So I got three identical pieces of sirloin steak. I seasoned one with salt, pepper, and sugar profusely, vacuum packed that and froze it. And I froze the other two as is. I did the 15-minute defrost on all three. I cooked them for about an hour, which was stated. But I pulled out the unseasoned one, seasoned it, and waited 45 minutes, pulled out the other two, and seared all three at the same time. The result was the pre-seasoned, frozen, seasoned steak was much, much better than the other two. It had great texture. It tasted better. It looked better. The one I seasoned 45 minutes ahead was slightly better than the one I seasoned at the very last minute. So that's my practice from now on. I've been seasoning steaks and pork chops, actually, and then vacuum packing them and freezing them. Well, here's what I know. It makes sense. It takes a long time for salt to penetrate. So you salt the meat, vacuum pack, and throw in the freezer. It's going to be getting into the meat for an hour or so. When you pull it out and then you do the 15-minute defrost and then sous vide, again, that's another hour, hour and a half. So you get about a couple hours or so of salt in contact with the meat that's not frozen or fully cooked. Right. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. The salt's penetrating. The meat's going to hold on to liquid better. That's what salt does. That's why brining works. Wow. Richard, thank you for all that homework. Yeah, well, it was fun. It was fun. And my family enjoyed it, too. So I have a question. Who got to eat the good stick? My daughter. Uh, Now that's a dad. (laughs) Good for you. He wins most of the time. (laughs) They always win. What do you mean most of the time? Yeah. Anyway... Good for you, Richard. Richard, we're gonna, we'll, thank uh, you. We're going to test it, too. But yes. I, yeah. I, thank you. Yeah. I just enjoy everything I hear on your show. So Good. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Steve, and my culinary tip is a non-invasive way to tell the doneness of red meat on the fire. Growing up with deaf people in my family, I learned sign language at a young age, and so when I was asked to interpret for a local culinary college here in New York, I jumped at the chance. Interpreting for deaf students meant that we had to invent some signs specific to what they were learning. One of those things was related to the doneness of red meat on the fire. And this technique works for hearing people as well. Take your non-dominant hand, palm up, and touch the tip of your thumb with the tip of your index finger. And then with your other hand, feel that fleshy part at the base of your thumb. 
See how soft it is. Progress onto your middle finger, your ring finger, your little finger, while you touch that fleshy part at the base of your non-dominant thumb. That corresponds to the feel of the doneness of meat on the grill. Interestingly, as a side note, those hand shapes of touching thumb to index, middle, ring, and little finger correspond to sign language signs for the numbers 9, 8, 7, and 6. So when an order came in, all we had to do was sign a number, and that corresponded to a level of doneness on the meat. Try it for yourself. It works well. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Right now, it's time for a language lesson with Grant Baird and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Martha and Grant, what's up? Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. Chris, today we're peeling back the mysteries of the onion. You know, the 19th century novelist Charles Dudley Warner once observed... The onion in its satin wrappings is among the most beautiful of vegetables. So so are we going to get the mysteries of the universe in in a red onion here? (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) But yeah, the onion as a metaphor for layers upon layers is legendary. And the end of that Charles Dudley Warner quote is, you take off coat after coat and the onion is still there. It really just begs to be turned into simile and metaphor. I just, you know, if I were a poet or writer and you had to pick a vegetable mm-hmm. to write about, would you pick the onion? <laughs> People pick fruit usually, like right? the plum, the apple, the pear. Yeah, there you go. But if you're writing, think about all the different layers. In fact, the notion of multiple layers may have inspired the vegetable's name. And how does onion mean multiple layers? Well, onion originally comes from Latin unio, which you know. meant oneness or unity. Isn't that beautiful? Right, which is the opposite of multiple layers. Well, it's all those layers right there in one vegetable. So this is like being married, like... It's just like being married. (laughs) Your significant other is full of layers. Absolutely. But they claim they're really simple. And sometimes it makes you cry, yes. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it makes you cry. So, So going back into history, was it just the Romans who held the onion to such high esteem? Well, the ancient Roman writer Columella actually claimed that the onion was called unio because it didn't produce any shoots. It was just hmm. one single entity. So it's it's a very, very old idea. Um, but the word unio in uh, ancient Rome was just used informally. Uh, the more common term in ancient Rome was kepa, which gave us the modern word cebolla in uh, Spanish and chipola in Italian. Huh. And uh, then a form of unio, unionim, passed through Old French and came to us as onion in English. So let's just throw out all this Latin, though. If you get tired of calling them onions and you don't want to deal with this Latin, you can always call them skunk eggs. What? Where's that from? (laughs) Apparently it's old cowboy slang. (laughs) Or cotton apples. Skunk eggs. Okay, that's a new one on me. Yeah, skunk eggs, you know, sort of like prairie strawberries, which are beans, right? They have all that cowboy right. slang for those kinds of things. Right. Well, I, I, I like prairie strawberries with a lot of uh, skunk eggs in them. They're good. <laughs> yeah, the idea behind court apples is supposedly uh, parents might feed them to their children before they went on dates to stop them from kissing their sweeties. Mm-hmm. Don't that wouldn't stop them. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably I mean, if they not. both ate onions, there's nothing to lose. Well, hey, speaking of dating, let me give you some helpful advice from a 1903 collection of folklore. Uh, this book says, 
Take four, five, or eight onions, name them after your lovers, and place them near the chimney. The first that sprouts will be your true love. Wait, hold on. Four, five, or eight? <laughs> well, that's that just really question. weird. I've I never know. had eight time? sweeties at one time. No. <laughs> what? No. Continuing to peel back the layers of onions, we also see the term onions in a lot of English phrases. For example, if you know your onions, do you know your onions about onions, Chris? I know my P's and Q's, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think I know my onions, no. Yeah, know your onions is something you're more likely to hear in the UK. It just means that you're knowledgeable about something. It apparently started in the marketplace. Older versions of it were know your beans or know your tomatoes or know your cucumbers. If you just know your produce, it means you're knowledgeable. You're likely not to be ripped off when you're buying stuff at the market. And if you want to have some fun, you can look up the corny song from 1926 by the California Ramblers called She Knows Her Onions. It's about a gal who leaves the farm and goes to the big city and becomes all sophisticated. And uh, it's got a catchy refrain, but the lyrics are kind of silly. They they include lines like, she hasn't any bunions, she don't get out and walk, but she knows her onions. <laughs> well, Chris, when I think about our time with you, I think about the Egyptian expression. It goes, an onion shared with a friend tastes like roast lamb. Well, that's food for thought. I need to consider what that means. But the the thing I'm going to be left with after this great segment is bunions and onions. <laughs> it's the perfect so rhyme. Just, I'm going to have to go write a song. Grant and Martha, I think we should just go cook some onions. Thank you. Take care, Chris. Bye, Chris. She knows her Spanish onions. She knows her baby talk. She hasn't any bunions. She don't get out and walk. Ah. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts. You can learn more about us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Noodles. Find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.